You know, watching, uh, watching Taylor share with Annalie up here, I was having flashbacks to that COVID Easter, remember? <clears throat> I was here preaching to an empty sanctuary, but you were all watching, and Melanie got out, <laughs> got away, and <laughs> you remember ran up and uh, stole the show for a little while at least. So <laughs> Annalie's not the first little girl that is, uh, <laughs> has done that. Um, you know, as I begin sermon this morning, I, I want to point out something that seems, <clears throat> excuse me, seems common to be a common desire um, among humans. And then there's lots of common desires that we have, you know, things, common desire for, for love, desire for purpose, those kinds of things. But, but what I want to highlight right now is, is our common desire, I think, to avoid suffering. I think we can all relate to that in one way or another. You know, if you, if you think about it, there's, there's many times maybe that we make decisions or, or, or that we have responses that are driven by that desire to avoid suffering. So, so for example, if a, if a person cheats at a game or cheats at a sport, it, it might be that desire to avoid suffering, maybe avoiding the suffering of having to put in the time and the energy and the effort that's required to win, or required to succeed, or, 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 or it could be avoiding the suffering of bearing the title loser. I don't want to suffer in that way, and so I'm going to cheat in order, in order to, uh, um, to win. Uh, helicopter parenting, we hear about that sometimes. I think that kind of stems from that desire. A desire both for the child to avoid suffering, but, but if we dig down, probably for the parent to avoid suffering as well. Um, we can avoid difficult conversations because we don't like suffering. We can, we can pursue wealth and physical comforts that come with wealth because yeah, we don't like suffering. Um, even, even euthanasia, which, which ends in death, is, is quite often a desire to avoid suffering, avoid physical suffering. And, and you know, what is, what is true for us today has been true throughout history. Mankind has not changed in that regard. But what if, as Christians, we're called to view suffering differently? What if God desires that we not try to avoid all suffering at all costs, but respond in a different way? That's really the theme that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's the theme that's at the heart of uh, of First Peter. Peter desired that the believers to whom he wrote would see their suffering for doing good, their, their suffering for, for their identity as Christians, in a new light. Okay, so that's going to be, that's gonna be the, the theme we're driving at this morning. I, I would encourage you to turn with me to First Peter. If you want to look in the Pew Bible, it's page 1014. Before we get into the text of the letter, I want us to take just a moment and think about the human author of the letter. The letter begins with a statement that it's written by the Apostle Peter. So let's just think for a moment about the implications of that, what we know about Peter. Right? Peter was present as Jesus' disciple for many of his teachings, teachings that focused on the kingdom of God, for example. Peter saw people be utterly transformed by Jesus. And Peter himself was one of those people who had such, such a transformation. 
Peter saw Jesus respond humbly and lovingly, even when confronted by those who opposed him. But Peter also had to grapple with Jesus' many statements about his own, about Jesus' own suffering and his upcoming death. So when Jesus first talked about his suffering and death on the cross, Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. I mean, I mean Peter, it didn't make sense to him. He wanted nothing to do with that. At which point Jesus said to Peter, that famous line, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter was wrestling <clears throat> with the suffering that Jesus was talking about there. When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his sword and cut off a guy's ear. I mean, it seems that at, you know, at that point in his life, Peter viewed undeserved suffering just like any ordinary person would. He didn't see how that was compatible with Jesus, with the ministry of Jesus. But by the time Peter wrote this letter, his view had changed drastically. As the Holy Spirit worked within Peter and he began to understand more and more of, of what he experienced as Jesus' disciple, Peter saw suffering in a whole new light. And so we'll see just what that is as we study his letter this morning. So, so as we get into the discussion, before we get to that main theme of suffering for Christ or suffering for doing good, we have to first observe that Peter, Peter spent much of the first portion of his letter addressing the believer's hope in Jesus and identity in Jesus. Hope in Jesus and identity with Jesus. Without that, the firm foundation of those two things, I, we're never going to see hardship for the sake of Jesus as anything but negative. We're not going to have our view change if we're not grounded in those two things. So, so let's start with the hope that we have in Jesus and how Peter talks about that. If you look with me at, at chapter 1, starting in verse 3, as I read these verses, listen especially for the hope that is present in his words. So in Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not see, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there's a few things that I want to highlight here. First, Peter speaks about the great inheritance that we are promised in Jesus. Uh, he refers to this inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, in the Old Testament, and, and, and we, 
maybe you picked up on it in the psalm that we read for the scripture reading. In the Old Testament, when God speaks about an inheritance, he's usually referring to the promised land, like physical real estate, okay? And it's this physical place on the present earth. But in the New Testament, our, in, our inheritance is, is not something physical on this perishable earth. Rather, it is spiritual and it is fully completed on the imperishable new earth. That's the inheritance that the New Testament talks about. That's the inheritance that Peter's has in mind here. The salvation given to us through Jesus means that we are saved from judgment and destruction and saved for blessing and eternity on the new earth. And that's a great reason for hope. When Peter talks about our hope in Jesus, man, all, all of the issues, all of the brokenness of this world will one day be just a, a memory due to the work of Jesus and the inheritance that we receive as his sons and daughters. And so Peter wants our vision, our, our focus to be upon that great hope, the inheritance that we have. Um, second, although, that, although Peter, uh, he mentions trials in verse 6, but what we see in verse 7 is that those, those trials have a refining effect. There's purpose to those trials. Nothing, nothing happens randomly and without purpose. And so <clears throat> when our faith is refined by trials, what Peter says is it results in praise and glory and honor. Now, there's ambiguity about whether the praise, glory, and honor in verse 7 is given by God to the Christian or by the Christian to God. It's ambiguous there in the text. The passage doesn't specify who's the one being praised and glorified and honored. Either way, there's great hope. There's great hope. If, if in Jesus we are given honor from God, what a blessing. And if in Jesus we are able to honor God, then again, what a blessing. Either way, we have a good hope there. And then in addition, Peter reminds the Christians further on in chapter 4, verse 7, he reminds them that even though they're facing trials, the end of all things is at hand. Um, Peter speaks of, of a, a time in chapter 5, verse 10, after suffering has ended. So in other words, whatever the believers were facing at that time, the suffering that they were experiencing, Peter spoke of the hope that those things would not last forever. The time would come when, in Jesus, the Christian will be brought fully into the eternal glory of God, free from trials and suffering. So, so all that to say, Peter seeks to proclaim hope in the midst of trials by expanding our view. When we become hyper-focused on the trial that we faced, it, it, it can become easy to lose hope, right? I mean, haven't we been there before in those things? We get so focused on the one thing right in front of us. We, we can become consumed by what's directly in front of our face. But in Jesus, we have hope because he's made promises to us about our eternal inheritance, about our faith being refined, and about the eventual end of all suffering. 
And so in order to, to have the view of suffering for doing good, which God wants us to have, we, we have to remember that hope that we have in Jesus. And Peter makes that clear to us. But then he also talks about not just hope. Uh, he took time really in the first two chapters to remind Christians about their identity in Jesus. We have to remember our hope, but we also have to remember our identity. So in, in chapter 1, verse 1, right off the bat, Peter calls the believers, uh, he called them the elect. They've been chosen by God. It's their identity. Uh, also in verse 1, and then, and then in verse uh, 17, chapter 2, verse 11, <clears throat> Christians are called exiles. Peter refers to them as exiles. Now, at first glance, it might be like, well, is that an identity that really inspires a lot of hope <laughs> to call believers exiles? But if we think about it, an exile is someone who's not currently in their home, not in their homeland. They, they by nature, don't quite fit in where they presently find themselves. And Peter is affirming that in Jesus, Christians don't quite fit in in this land. We are citizens of another place, as Paul writes in his letter. So it's good that we are exiles, that we don't fit in in this world that's filled with suffering. There's hope in that identity. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter calls the Christians holy, set apart by God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, they're called ransomed, uh, redeemed, purchased out of. They're they, they no longer held captive by the feudal ways which once held them. And then, and then there's a whole list of things in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So I'll just read down through this. In verse 4, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepting to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I mean, <laughs> you catch everything in there? Paul, Paul talking about our, or Peter talking about our identity, right? Living stones in a spiritual house, a, a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood, a chosen race, uh, Jesus' own possession, God's people, uh, receivers of mercy. I mean, it just... It went on and on, our identity in Jesus. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 16. He, uh, Peter reminds us that we are free. The identity that we've been given in Jesus because of his work on our behalf is incredible. 
And these are just the things that Peter mentioned. If, if we broadened our scope and looked at the entire New Testament or the entire Bible, we could make that list even longer. Man, it's incredible who we are in Christ. You know, we're, we're not just globs of cells and atoms who happen to have a heartbeat and, and brain waves and who just by random chance are at a specific place and time in history. I mean, th- that is not us in any way. We are people who've been chosen by God and given purposed by God and loved by God and who point to God. That is our identity in Jesus Christ. And those are all descriptions that speak of value, don't they? There's value in that identity. And I think when we face trials and suffering because we live out our faith in Jesus, the thought can creep into our mind, doesn't, doesn't God care? I mean, when, when hardship is before us and it doesn't seem like it's going away, we can wonder, does, does God truly see me as valuable? I mean, is this just a one-sided relationship where I care more about God than he cares more about me? I mean, we, we, can, we can think and feel those kinds of things in the midst of trials and suffering. And, and in order to combat those false ideas, which come from the devil, Peter reminds us of our true identity in Jesus, an identity that does not change with the presence or the absence of suffering. That identity is firm. Who we are in Jesus is secure. It doesn't change. And so in light of that, in light of our hope in Jesus and in light of our identity in Jesus, the question then is, okay, so so what does that have to do with suffering for doing good? Why are those two things essential and foundational when it comes to viewing suffering in a different way? Well, when our hope and our identity in Jesus is secure, and when we, when we see it as secure, it's possible for undeserved suffering to take on a whole new purpose. A purpose that wouldn't have been possible before. It, it's, suffering becomes, uh, it's po- it, it becomes something not just to be avoided at all costs or eradicated at all costs, but something which can be used for great good. And the mere mention of suffering and great good in the same sentence might stir up emotions within us, right? Those two things don't feel like they're supposed to go together, suffering and great good. But, But let's see what Peter has to say before coming to conclusions about that, right? There, there are two main, as I read through First Peter, I think there's two main good outcomes which Peter sees as being brought about when a person suffers for being a Christian. First is that our, our suffering and the way in which we respond to it can give glory to God. It can give glory to God. Look again at chapter 1, uh, verse 7. Peter speaks of trials and suffering revealing the genuineness of our faith. It's much easier to be a Christian when things are going well and when we face few difficulties and the skies are sunny. I mean, it's easier then, but, but it's a whole different thing to hold on to our faith in God when, when we don't understand the difficult things happening and when we find ourselves in the midst of deep pain 
being mistreated by others. Faith that remains through the refining trial of suffering shows that the object of our faith is worthy and glorious. Right? If, if the object of our faith was faulty, we would have discarded our faith when things got tough. I mean, what would, what would be the point? But when we hold fast in the face of suffering, and again, and this is by God's grace, by God's grace. If our faith perseveres, it's him working in us and through us. When that happens, we bring honor and glory to God by proclaiming him to be above all things. That even in the midst of what we are facing, we're not going to give that up. We're not going to cast that to the side. That God is worthy of our faith in the midst of those things. That good times don't reveal that kind of faith, or they don't reveal it as powerfully than times of, of suffering for doing good. It's in the face of that that we really glorify God in a dark world. His character can be seen through our response to suffering. Listen to chapter 2, verse 12. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, boy, that's a powerful statement. Live in such a way that even, uh, even those who oppose you will see how you respond and, and just be led to glorifying God. You know, as part of the human race, we know what our typical response is to suffering. We avoid it, we fight it, we try to stop it, we want to repay anyone who causes it. But, but Peter tells the believers that they ought to continue to do good even in the midst of suffering for the name of Jesus. Because in doing so, our good deeds glorify God. Our repaying good for evil makes the curious person stop and ask, why? And especially in our world, right, where it's back and forth, one side against the other, man, to respond in this way causes that curious person to have to stop and consider and ask why. And if they follow the evidence, then they will find out that because of God's work within us, that's why we are responding. It's his character being formed in us that leads us to respond in the way we do to suffering. And that, that same line of thinking is, is in chapter 3 as well. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You know, we often think that the charge there to always be prepared to make a defense, we, we think about that in terms of apologetics, don't we? 
I've heard it used that way a lot, you know. It, it's, a, it's what apologists will use to spur us toward, you know, studying apologetics. We need to always be ready to give a defense. And, and, and that's true, right? But how does verse 14 start? How does the thought start? Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So it's in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake that we ought to continue doing good. And then when someone takes notice and asks us why we respond to suffering differently than they expect us to, then we're ready to give an answer to that. So it's not just apologetics in general. Peter has a specific situation in mind. Why do I, why do I have hope in the face of suffering? Well, let me let me tell you about where my hope lies, where my identity lies. That's why it's important to have those grounded in Jesus. Because then when the suffering comes and we are responding with good to it, we're ready to give that answer. I have hope in Jesus. That's why I respond the way I do. My identity is in Jesus. That's why I treated you this way instead of that way. And Peter speaks about that in chapter 4, uh, verse 4 as well. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Right? When we, when we don't go along with the pattern of this world in terms of fulfilling our human passions, and we are maligned because of it, we can stand firm, knowing that our perseverance in the face of such suffering brings glory to God. Suffering provides an opportunity to glorify God in a way that we couldn't otherwise. And, and when we seek to avoid that suffering or we seek to end that suffering as quickly as we can, we're forfeiting that opportunity. We're missing it. And again, it's not our natural way to think about suffering, right? It's not my natural response. My default is, is to pray that God would resolve the situation as quickly and painlessly as possible. But instead, I ought to consider how the situations I face and my response to them can be a spotlight pointing to God's glory. It's not about ending the suffering as fast as I can. It's about being faithful in the midst of it and understanding that maybe God is going to use this in a great way. On my own, I'll never view suffering in that way. <laughs> I won't do it on my own. But when my hope is in Jesus, when my identity is in Jesus, that becomes possible. So that, that's the first outcome there, good outcome of uh, suffering for doing good. The other one that Peter speaks of is a deepening intimacy with Jesus. Shared experiences breed deeper intimacy. I was thinking about this, and, I, and my, uh, my thoughts went to mission trips. If, you have, if you've ever been on a mission trip before, you know that you form a bond with everyone else on your team. The shared experience together creates a depth of relationship that you didn't have prior to the trip. Even if you'd spent lots of time in training and preparation, there's still something about that shared experience of the trip that... That, that leads to that deeper intimacy. Um, those of us that hosted Basque students this past month have had that kind of deepened relationships with one another through shared experiences. Um, the same kind of thing happens to soldiers in foxholes, um, first responders on the scene of an emergency, and, and, and even something as silly, I was thinking about roller coasters. 
You know, when you go on a roller coaster and sit next to someone and have that experience together, there's just something that kind of bonds you together a little bit about that. Shared experiences breed deeper relationships. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when we, when we looked at the Gospel of Mark, one of the things Mark highlights is the suffering of Jesus. He suffered rejection. He suffered humiliation. He suffered relational tension. He suffered physical pain inflicted by others. And all of it was done unjustly. I mean, Jesus didn't deserve a single bit of what he suffered. And when we face suffering for doing good and for being a follower of Jesus, we have a bit of a shared experience with Jesus. I mean, listen to how Peter describes this. Looking back at chapter 2, starting in verse 18, Peter says this. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, but not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but, now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when we suffer unjustly, we get a, we get a taste of what Jesus experienced. Jesus was sinless and, and without deceit, and yet he, Peter says he did not revile, he did not threaten those who inflicted suffering upon him. And as, again, as humans, and maybe doubly as Americans, we have this innate sense that it is our right not to suffer for our beliefs in Jesus, Right? Isn't that my right to not have to suffer for the name of Jesus? Doesn't that sound very American to say that? Man, if I'm, if I'm suffering at the hands of, a, of another person or a group of people, it's my right, it's my duty to stop them. Imagine if Jesus had taken that approach. Ooh, I mean, imagine if Jesus, if he said, it's, it's my right to never have to face anything difficult or painful because I'm perfect, I don't deserve this. I mean, if he did that, you and I are hopelessly lost in our sins. That's, that's the end of that story. Instead, Jesus received that suffering that he didn't deserve, that was unjust, for the good of others. And as a result of what he did, we are given salvation and we are made alive to righteousness. And the Heavenly Father is glorified through Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross. Man. And so when it comes to us, you know, when, when we too receive unjust suffering following the example of Jesus, 
we share his experience and we deepen our relationship with him. Our intimacy with him deepens as we go through that. Our understanding of him increases. Our love for him grows in those situations. Uh, One more passage to read. Chapter 4, verse 12. Listen to what Peter says there. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if we suffer for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Now, it's not like the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell us if we don't suffer for God. That's not what Peter's saying here. God's Holy Spirit is promised and given to all who are his sons and daughters. But when we suffer for the name of Christ, there's an especially powerful way that we are joined together with the Holy Spirit. Something that comes through that shared experience with Jesus. So we could, you know, we could have a discussion about the amount of suffering that Christians face in our present context. And, and in that discussion, one person might say, well, it's not, it's not too bad when compared to Christians throughout history, or it's not too bad when compared to Christians at other, um, who live now, but at other places in our world. And there could be another person that says, man, this suffering's getting worse and worse and worse. It's so much worse than it used to be. And Regardless of how we view it compared to other times and places, uh, suffering for Jesus in our context, in every context, it does exist. It does exist. The, the popular culture in which we find ourselves does not welcome the ways of Jesus. So regardless of how intense we view our suffering for Jesus to be, it, it, it's there. And so... As you and I, uh, as our hope and our identity is grounded in Jesus, and as we seek to live according to those things, we're going to face hardship. We're going to face hardship for the name of Jesus. I, I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like, but it'll be there at some point. And when that suffering comes, we ought to, ought to resist our initial urge to instantly be freed from that suffering, to put it to the side and get rid of it. And instead, we have to remember the three things that that Peter reminds us of this morning. We have to remember our hope in Jesus. We have an inheritance. Trials refine our faith. The end of suffering will come. There's great hope in Jesus. We have to remember our identity in Jesus. We are his chosen ones, and we are valued by him. We are given purpose by him. And then we remember that God can bring and does bring great good from suffering. He can be glorified, and and we can grow deeper in our relationship with him. We've got to remember those three things when we face suffering. Let's not be surprised when it comes. 
not be surprised, but remember those things and then respond in the wisdom and power of God to the suffering that we face. He, he will see us through. He will see us through and he will bring great good out of it. And we can rest in that and trust him in that. Stand together with me. Let's, let's come before God this morning and ask that he would transform our thinking in this area. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the reminder that Peter gives to us. And I, I, I can speak for myself, and, and I'm sure many of us in here as well, we just, we don't like to suffer. We, we, we want to walk the other way and get away from it. God, but would you give us this enlarged, renewed vision of suffering for you? Would you, would you help us to, to see, even if it's just a glimpse of, of what you can do and what you are doing through it? And even if we don't have that glimpse, God, would you help us to trust you? May our, may our focus be upon our hope and our identity in you, and may that inform how we respond to suffering. God, it's, it's, it's easy to stand here and say it, but in the midst of those situations, it's, it's hard. So would you provide for us? Would you give us what's needed? We, we, we want to bring glory and honor to you. We want to know you more. But we want to do that quite often without suffering. God, would you help us to recognize that that that's one of the ways that you work. I thank you for, for the hope that we have, that, that we will live with you for an eternity apart from trials and pain and suffering, and that, that that is what awaits us forever. We give you praise for that. But in the meantime, God, before we are there, would you help us to suffer well? Would you help us to do it for your glory and to know you more? We pray this in your name this morning. Amen.